you have a Bible with you or near you, uh, go ahead and open up to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament toward the end. It's one of those short little letters, Galatians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be reading uh, a little snippet of this letter to the Galatians that the Apostle Paul wrote. And this was written to a group of churches who had lost their way and needed a gospel reset. And I'm wondering if that's you this morning. Do you need a gospel reset on this first day of the year? Um, maybe you need to return to the burning center and remember why you became a Christian in the first place. Or maybe you're just here and exploring and you don't know what any of this is all about. And so you need a gospel reset for the very first time. Um, if, if you haven't noticed by now, my voice is a little less uh, than cooperative with me this morning. Um, but uh, bear with me through it, because uh, this text is one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. Um, in many ways, I am alive today because of the truths in this text. I am a minister because of the truths that we are about to talk about in this text. Uh, this is the burning center. If you want to ask, what is Christianity uh, look like in a believer's life, this is the place to go. Um, and I've had a few gospel resets myself. And hopefully we'll have another one this morning. Uh, my first gospel reset started in a church lobby on a Sunday morning in late June. I was a, had just finished my freshman year of college. Um, I had gone to a Christian college after coming to faith the year before, and I spent the whole year reading scripture, studying philosophy and Christian doctrine, and trying really, 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 really hard to be spiritual and pious. I gave up coffee for Lent. Don't ask me how that went. And honestly, on that Sunday morning, as I stood there, I was just tired of it all. And I'm standing in the church lobby, and I look around at all these uh, wealthy suburbanites with their fake smiles and their fancy cars, and the thought, uh, drinking their, you know, church coffee together, and the thought just came into my mind, I hate these people. I hate these people. What went wrong? I just spent the year studying Augustine. I just, I just read through the whole scriptures in, the, in my first year of college. I'm just dwelling on this stuff. I'm getting ready to go away and serve the poor for the summer. I'm spending an hour a day every morning with God without coffee. And I hate these people. What is wrong? Uh, I, that summer I had an internship in China. And uh, so the next day I was due to leave. Uh, my flight was due to leave. And my, my father uh, drove me to the airport and he sensed that something was a little bit off. And so he gave me this workbook. Um, and it was the title, the workbook was titled Sonship. Sonship. And I didn't really know what it was. Uh, but it turns out at its core, it was about living in your everyday life in light of Galatians 4, 4 to 7. Uh, and that's the text we're going to explore this morning. 
And so I spent this month working an office job in Tianjin, China, which if, you have, if you've never been there, uh, just watch the Lord of the Rings and watch the scenes with Mordor, you got it. Um, and <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, and every night after work, I would return to my dinky little apartment um, and I would crack open a Qingdao beer and I would do the workbook. And I devoured this workbook. And day by day, it was like, it was like the lights turning on for me. Uh, and all the fear and hatred and the exhaustion and the cynicism and the bitterness and the pride, it just like dried up like a puddle on a warm summer day. Thomas Chalmers calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. What came in their place? Joy. Joy. The theme of my summer after that was doing God's work God's way. And when you do God's work God's way, it's full of joy. And so this morning I want to talk about that. And I would like for us to all have a chance to have a gospel reset. Um, whether, you are, whether you've been in church for years and years and years, you know everything there is to be known, you've been to 12 different seminaries, or you're like a brand new baby believer. Um, basically, if you're really experienced at Christianity, or you're at the very beginning, um, you, have the same, you have the same level. Uh, there's no advanced Christianity. It's all right here. I want to look at Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. And we're going to look at two life-changing truths. Um, two life-changing truths. But before I do that, I want to set the scene. Of, because we need to see the backdrop if we're going to understand the life-changing truths. If you go into a jewelry store, you're going to see diamonds and set out. But what are they set against? Black velvet, usually. Right? Because it shines against the background. So what's the background? Uh, in the immediate verses before 4 to 7... And we don't have time to go into all of them this morning. But Paul describes the human condition. He says that when we're left to our own devices, uh, all of us live in a kind of slavery. Slavery. Uh, so the Jews who had a relationship with God, who had received his guidance and instruction in the form of the Torah or law, right? they, Paul says, for all of that benefit, still lived as slaves under it. The law, he said, was our pedagogos. I won't make you say that because I love you, church. Uh, our, it was our guardian, our tutor, our stern schoolmaster, our disciplinarian. Anybody ever, ever have a really harsh teacher growing up? You know what a pedagogos is. That's what the law was like. He said, the law is good and true and helpful, but it does not have the capacity to empower and regenerate the human soul. It just doesn't. And so Paul says that the law imprisoned people. We were stuck in this endless cycle of striving to meet the standard and falling short and failing again, and then striving to meet the standard and failing again, and striving to meet the standard and failing again, and thinking, maybe if this time, if I strive and I meet the standard, maybe I'll be enough now. It's like that ancient Greek myth about Sisyphus, right? Forever he's rolling the same rock up the hill. And then he gets to the top and it rolls back down. And then he has to roll, push the rock back up the hill again. You ever feel like your life is like that? This can be maddening. If you live by the law, it's like having this father who's just impossible to please. Whatever you do, it's never good enough. He's never impressed. 
and you're always living under the shadow of his disapproval. You're never good enough to meet the law. You never are. If you break it at one point, then you've broken the whole law. That's the plight for the Jews. And for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, Paul says, the situation is even more hopeless. They're enslaved to what he calls the elementary principles of the universe, the stoicheia. Uh, this is a tough word to understand, but the New Testament scholar Alan Cole says that it refers to either A, uh, elementary stages of religious experience, so basic religious striving, or B, the elementary principles of moral law, so moral striving. So when Paul says the Gentiles are enslaved to the elementary principles of the universe, we are enslaved to our moral and religious striving, all of us. Even if you haven't received the law from God, you know that something is up there, that you are fundamentally disconnected from it, and that you ought to do better than you do. That's common sense, but it's also found in Romans 1 and all over the rest of the New Testament. So on that Sunday morning in the church lobby, uh, this was the core reason, I think, behind my cynicism and my hatred for these poor suburbanites. I knew there was a God. I had been spending all year trying to please him or at least assuage him or master him in some way, but I still felt disconnected, frustrated, and angry. The techniques didn't work. If your New Year's resolution is to get right with God, you can employ whatever techniques you can. You can do whatever Bible reading plans you, you like. Actually, I, rec I recommend all the Bible reading plans. They're good. But it won't fix it. Religion just didn't work for me, to be honest. And it won't work for you either. Um, are you all encouraged now? But the gospel says that God isn't like that. Life-changing truth number one, I'll call the reality of sonship. Or better put, the objective reality of sonship. Verse four. But, all of this, but, when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's the key. Adop uh, the gospel is not about your efforts. It is about God's intervention. At just the right time in history, God sent forth his son. Who's doing the action here? God. Uh, he knows our plight, and he loves us enough that he decided to take action. So he sent his son into the world to be born of a woman, fully human, you know, eating, sleeping, getting tired, the whole enchilada of human life, um, being betrayed, being sad, all of it, and then he did it without sin. He lived this perfect life, and, and why? Like, why, why? People have said, you know, throughout the holidays, Christmas is the reason for the season. Uh, you, you get a gift card or a postcard like that. 
but what's the reason for Christmas? What's the point? Look on. To redeem, or more literally, to purchase out of slavery those who were under the law. That's you and me. So our default is slavery to the law or to the elementary principles of the universe, to our moral and religious obligations, which we are very much obligated to. But that is our condition, but God sent his son to buy us out of that condition. That's why he came. That's why Christmas. So he didn't come primarily to teach us or to inspire us. Jesus of Nazareth is a great moral exemplar and a great teacher. That is true. He is an inspirational figure. That is true. Those are not why he came. He came to buy us. So if you're a Christian, the foundation of your identity is that you are one who have been bought. Now, uh, in Paul's day, uh, slavery was a thing. Uh, it actually still is a thing in our world today. Uh, but it was more socially accepted. Right? So if you went into the slave market, uh, and there are all kinds of different people, that human beings that were for sale, after one has been bought, they, if you were to say, what is the value of this particular person? Well, there's an objective uh, way of telling that, right? How much should they pay for them? How much do they cost? That's how you know how valuable they are. It's basic economics. Christ bought us with his own life. The Son of God bought us with his own life. What does that say about your identity, about your value as a human being? I love that collect, right? That he, dig, he dig, wonderfully restores the dignity of human nature. How do you think he did that? He did it by buying us. And having bought us out of slavery, then he gave us and we receive adoption as sons. Now, this always bothered me. Uh, why doesn't he just say adoption as sons and daughters? Or why not just adoption, right? Ladies, don't you feel a little left out here? Come on, Paul. Are you so, why do you have to be so male-centric here? Uh, daughters of the king, you are adopted every bit as much as sons. Um, but Let's not get rid of the word adoption as sons here, and I'm going to show you why. Uh, this is important. We have to see the richness of what Paul is saying. Uh, adoption to sonship is a single word in the Greek, huiothesion. It's a Roman legal word. In that culture, as a rule, women were not allowed to inherit property, right? It was an old patriarchal society. That's just how it was. So wealthy landowners... Uh, had to find a male heir. If you have a biological son, that's great, but let's say you have three daughters, they cannot legally inherit your property. Sorry, ladies, it's just how it was. Um, but there was this provision where a wealthy landowner could legally adopt an adult male of their choice to be their heir. They were, there was a whole set of formalities for how this would happen. And the person was adopted in, and they became not only a part of the family, but the heir to things. So uh, the first Caesar was Julius Caesar, right? The second Caesar was Augustus Caesar. His first name, his name was originally Octavian. Octavian is not Julius Caesar's biological son. Rather, he was adopted. That's what this word is talking about. Um, so... 
Adoption to sonship in Paul's day doesn't just mean included in the family, has a place at the table. It means you are included, yes, and you are an heir to everything. That's why he says adoption to sonship. I mean, Paul is the most is radically inclusive of women and every single nation, socioeconomic class, and everything. Look at Galatians 3.28, just a couple verses before this. In Christ Jesus, there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. Ladies, you are fully included every, much, every bit as much as men. But the point is that this adoption is so profound and so complete that you get all the rights of a Roman firstborn son. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. That's amazing. You're not, you don't get to come and, but get stuck at the kids' table. And I want to stress that this is an objective reality. It's not just an experience. It's not just a feeling. Uh, there are many Christians, and I'm one of them, uh, who often live and feel like an orphan and a slave. Even though the objective reality that God has spoken over them is, that's my child, that is my adopted son and heir to my promises. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you absolutely are just full of bitterness and exhaustion and hatred. Maybe you're like I was in that church lobby. I looked around and I thought, I hate these people. But you know what God said on that moment of me? I'll tell you what he did. Through the merits of mediation of Christ, he looked on me and said, that's my son. I love him. He really needs some help right now. I'm going to give him a workbook and a case of Qingdao beer. But there's the objective reality of sonship, but there's also the experience of sonship. This is life-changing truth number two. Look at verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Remember, God first sent his son to secure the objective reality of our sonship. And now we hear that God sent the spirit of his son, that's the Holy Spirit, into our hearts to create the experience of our sonship. We see that same word. There's only one person, one person doing action in this. Did you notice that? Uh, or at least initiating action. That's God. He sent. He sent. All we do is cry. First, God does ascending for you to purchase you. Then God does ascending into you to heal you. And what does the Spirit do? Spirit cries in us, Abba, Daddy. If that makes you uncomfortable, good. It should. But that's the kind of intimacy that we're invited into. Honestly, I think that a lot of things that we say and the, the ways that we pray in churches that sound really pious and formal might be insulting to God. Uh, when my little ones get hurt, right, uh, what do you think they do? Do they, like, 
go open the medicine cabinet and quietly try to bandage themselves up. You know, I come in, like, it's bleeding all over the floor. Oh, hello, Father. I'm so sorry to inconvenience you. I promise I'll clean up all this blood when I'm done. No! If there is a banged knee or a banged elbow, it's just like, bah! Automatically. He doesn't process through whether he's worthy of my attention in that moment. He just cries. That's the kind of relationship that God has secured for us and by the spirit that we're invited into. Just cry. You don't have to prove anything to him. He already did it for you. Um, so my prayer is that before we make our resolutions, that we would reset and remind of our, ourselves of what God has resolved. That's the foundation upon which everything in, in Christian life is built. All of our good works, all of our piety, all of our studies and prayers, all of our church growth, everything is built upon this foundation of the gospel of a God who loved you when you did not love him. So what does God think of you right now? Right now. As you were sitting in this pew on Sunday morning, that is the question that we need to answer. And I can tell you what the answer is. He loves you. He loves you so profoundly that you cannot possibly even begin to imagine the richness of that love. And he proved it with his own son and by shedding his own blood. And that is enough reason for us to have a reset and a comfort in the year to come. Amen? Amen. Amen.